Father, we thank you for the opportunity that each and every one of us have to gather together today and worship the creator and sustainer of the universe without persecution. Lord, sometimes we take this great privilege for granted, but let us not do so today. As your word is opened, I pray that you would humble each and every one of us, especially me, so that you would be exalted above all things, that you would be treasured above all, that nothing would compare to you. In Christ's name, amen. What are some of the most horrific news headlines of your lifetime? Think about, about it. There have been some great tragedies, some terrible things that have occurred. I'm only 40 years old, and even in my lifetime, there have been some horrific news headlines. Listen to a few of these. The Rwandan genocide. Neighbor killing neighbor, an estimated 500,000 people killed in about 100 days. I remember in seventh grade science class, our teacher gathered all the students together to get around the TV and watch as the space shuttle Challenger was about to put the first school teacher in space. 73 seconds later, we all watched that space shuttle explode before our very eyes, killing that teacher and all of the astronauts. The Columbine massacre, 12 students and a teacher killed. The Oklahoma City bombing where a truck bomb destroyed a federal building, killing 168 people and injuring nearly 700. What about Hurricane Katrina? The costliest hurricane in U.S. history flooded New Orleans, killing more than 1,700 people. The 9-11 terrorist attacks, which killed nearly 3,000 people and led to wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. And more recently, the killings at Sandy Hook Elementary School in Newtown, Connecticut, Superstorm Sandy, and the Boston Marathon bombings. We are not unfamiliar with horrific headlines. Tragedy is a reality of our fallen world in which you and I live. And tragedy was not unfamiliar to Jesus in the days he walked the earth. In today's horrific news headline, we read that John the Baptist, the man Jesus called the greatest man to ever live, is beheaded. And just like many of the tragic headlines I've already mentioned, this account is as much about the murderers as it is the victim. Read with me. Matthew 14, starting in verse 1. Matthew 14, we'll be reading verses 1 through 12. At that time, Herod, the teacher, heard about the fame of Jesus. And he said to his servants, This is John the Baptist. He has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. For Herod had seized John and bound him and put him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife. Because John had been saying to him, it is not lawful for you to have her. And though he wanted to put him to death, he feared the people because they held him to be a prophet. But when Herod's birthday came, the daughter of Herodias danced before the company and pleased Herod. So that he promised with an oath to give her whatever she might ask. Prompted by her mother, she said, give me the head of John the Baptist here on a platter. And the king was sorry. 
But because of his oaths and his guests, he commanded it to be given. He sent and had John beheaded in the prison. And his head was brought on a platter and given to the girl. And she brought it to her mother. And his disciples came and took the body and buried it. And they went and told Jesus. If you remember from last week, at the end of Matthew 13, Jesus has been rejected in his hometown of Nazareth. Even though he astonished them with wisdom and mighty works, they had actually taken offense at him, which prompted Jesus to say to them, A prophet is not without honor, except in his hometown and his own household. In our passage today, we see how another group of leaders, specifically Herod and Herodias, in another town, treated another prophet, John the Baptist. This serves to highlight the current climate in Israel. Prophets are still being persecuted by Israel's leaders. In many ways, this foreshadows what was to come in Jesus' suffering and death. Grant Osborne comments, The baton is being passed from the great prophet to the greater prophet. Now, as we work through Matthew, we'll refer to Mark's account, since Mark's account of this story is a little more detailed. He also wrote a biography about Jesus where this story is held. But let's pick back up in our passage today, Matthew 14, verses 1 and 2. At that time, Herod the teacher heard about the fame of Jesus, and he said to his servants, This is John the Baptist. He has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. Here, Jesus te- uh, here Matthew tells us that Jesus says fame was spreading. And as it spread, Herod heard about it. This Herod was the son of Herod the Great, which you probably remember from Matthew chapter 2. Herod the Great was the ruler who wanted to identify Jesus' location upon his birth so that he could kill him. And when he could not find the exact location of Jesus' birth, he resorted to the slaughter of every male two years old and younger in Bethlehem and the surrounding region. So in today's passage, we read about his son, Herod the Tetrarch, who is reminded of his own murderous act by the spreading fame of Jesus. This new Herod, ruler of Galilee and Perea, has heard about these miraculous signs that Jesus is working and is convinced that it's the resurrected John the Baptist, the man he had killed. Can you imagine the paranoia he must be experiencing if this truly is the man that he murdered, now resurrected and with miraculous powers at his disposal? You ever done something wrong and and gotten away with it? Something you knew was wrong, but you just were waiting till it caught up with you, till you got busted. In my late teen years, uh, I had a run-in with the police, mainly by association, but in trouble nonetheless. And me and my friends, we convinced the cops not to call our parents. That's what all good teenagers do, right? Don't tell mom and dad. So they let us go. We went home. We barely slept that night. We woke up. Every time that phone would ring in my parents' house, I just knew it was the cops calling to inform them what we had done the night before. 
And it, they didn't have cell phones back then. These were the old big phones that were attached to the wall with big cord. You couldn't hide these things. You couldn't turn them off. Every time I was worried. A few days later, I was outside and a cop passed our home. I didn't live in a neighborhood where cops drove by all the time. And I knew he just missed our driveway, was going to turn around and come back and tell my parents what I had done. Well, my paranoia drove me to confession to my dad. I couldn't stand it anymore. And it seems my son is probably wondering, what did dad get in trouble for? And I'm not going to tell him, <laughs> just so you guys know. But it seems that Herod's guilt over what he had done to John the Baptist was weighing heavily on him. Herod's guilt seems to have resulted in significant paranoia. I believe that part of Herod's paranoia is how he viewed John the Baptist. In Mark's parallel account, we learn that Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man. So why did Herod put to death the man the scriptures say that he feared? A man he considered to be righteous and holy. As we will soon see, it was a desire for sensual indulgence apart from any accountability. I'll be honest with you, when, when Larry gave me this passage that he wanted me to preach and I read it, I began to wonder, what, what am I going to do with this passage? I mean, it's the obituary of John the Baptist. One commentator that I, I first read said this, this story is the only story in either Matthew or Mark where Jesus is not the main topic. That is not what you want to read when you're about to preach a passage of Scripture. But you know what I found as I began meditating, studying, and digging into this text? I found treasures. From this, at first glance, highly skimmable passage. It's true that all Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable. So let's dig into it. Referring to our passage, Bruner writes, because you know we all have to reference Bruner if you're preaching on the book of Matthew at North Wake. So, Bruner says, Everything Jesus commands against in his sermon on the mount contributes to the death of the Baptist. As I mentioned, there's more to this passage than at first glance. Now, for clarification, I'm not arguing here. We're going to look back at the Sermon on the Mount. I'm not arguing that, that Herod was familiar with the Sermon on the Mount. I don't know if he was or he wasn't. But what I do know is that it his teachings and disobedience to his teachings are clearly on display. And I want to highlight those dangers of rejecting God's word for us today. So Herod and Herodias then are representatives of a life apart from following God. Picking back up on our passage in verse 3. For Herod had seized John and bound him and put him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife. Because John had been saying to him, it is not lawful for you to have her. Flip back a few pages in your Bible. I want you to flip back to the Sermon on the Mount. Specifically, Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 through 48. And I want, to, I want you to keep your fingers there because we'll keep referring back to it. I just want to remind you of this particular section of Scripture that Larry's already preached on. And you can use the kind of section headings to highlight. In verses 27 through 30, Jesus equates lustful intent with adultery and prescribes a radical strategy of tearing out your right eye or cutting off your right hand if it causes you to sin. 
But what has Herod done in our passage today? He has his brother Philip's wife. History tells us that Herod was already married to the daughter of Artis IV. And even though he was already married, his appetite for more, his lust for what was not his, resulted in him pursuing another man's wife. And his desire was not for some random woman. No, it was his one-time sister-in-law. It was his half-brother Philip's wife, as well as his niece. Whether Herod was aware of Jesus' radical teachings of sanctification or not, he chose to pursue the lust of his flesh. And we will see his indulgence in the sensual leads to him down a path, a dangerous path, which even John's bold confrontation would not prevent. So let's get to a little application, church. Where do your lusts lead you? I'm confident that you are not married to your brother's wife here today. But do you occasionally look at pornography? Do you fantasize about being with someone who is not your spouse? Men usually fantasize about the physical, whereas women usually fantasize about the emotional. Both are just as sinful in God's eyes. Ladies, do you ever dream about being married to someone else? If my husband could just be like so-and-so. Singles, what thoughts and images run through your minds on a daily basis? What shape does lust take in your life? Now Jesus prescribes a radical strategy of gouging out and cutting off good things if they are avenues by which you lust. In what ways are you currently participating in this radical strategy for purity? John Owen makes this battle cry clear when he says, you must always be killing sin or it will be killing you. Are you killing lust on a daily basis? Herod clearly wasn't, but instead he rejected John's biblical warning and counsel and pursued what made him feel good. Looking at verses 31 and 32 of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus speaks to the issue of divorce. There were laws governing divorce. Herod's first wife is no longer in the picture. And as we will soon see in the next point, Herod's relationship with Herodias does not uphold God's law. In verses 17 through 20 of the Sermon on the Mount, we see that Christ came to fulfill the law. He is in support of upholding the law, not relaxing the least of the commandments or teaching others to relax them. Jewish law clearly forbade Herod's relationship to Herodias. Leviticus 18, 16 says, You shall not uncover the nakedness of your brother's wife. It is your brother's nakedness. And Leviticus 20, 21, If a man takes his brother's wife, it is impurity. He has uncovered his brother's nakedness. They shall be childless. John had warned Herod against his relationship with Herodias. And it appears that he had warned him several times. The scriptures say that John had been saying, which implies that this was in a repeated warning John gave Herod. He had many opportunities to repent and turn. But instead of heeding John's warnings, Herod places John in prison so that he could continue pursuing his sinful desires unhindered 
and without rebuke. There are two sides of application here. One from Herod's example and one from John's. From Herod's example. What personal sin struggles are you closed-minded about? What idols do you fight to hold on to? Which of God's commands are you unwilling to listen to when a friend graciously and humbly reminds you of them? From John's example, do you love the people around you enough to confront their sin? In a loving, gracious way, with their best interest in mind, but boldly reminding them of God's best for their life? Are you willing to step out of your comfort zone to love someone you are close to when the Bible says that they are in danger? John was willing to die for his convictions and for love of another. Picking back up in verse 5. And though he wanted to put him to death, he feared the people because they held him to be a prophet. In Mark's account, we're given some additional information. Mark 6, verse 19. And Herodias had a grudge against him, John, and wanted to put him to death, but she could not. Flipping back to the Sermon on the Mount, verses 40 through 48, Jesus expects his people to love their enemies and pray for the people who persecute them. This stands in stark contrast to Herodias' grudge that she had against John. Her grudge cultivated a desire, a longing for the death of her enemy. No love, no prayers, just punishment and vengeance. Only the death of her enemy would suffice. So how do you treat your enemies? Do you hold grudges? Do you cling tightly to the memories of wrongdoing? Or do you offer forgiveness? Does your remembrance of how much you have been forgiven in Christ motivate you to forgive others with that same level of forgiveness? What marks your life? Unforgiveness or forgiveness? Do you look more like Herodias or Jesus in this area? Continuing on, verse 6. But when Herod's birthday came, the daughter of Herodias danced before the company and pleased Herod, so that he promised with an oath to give her whatever she might ask. Mark's account at least limits this oath to half his kingdom. It says, and he vowed to her, whatever you ask me, I will give you up to half of my kingdom. Flip back to the Sermon on the Mount, verses 33 through 37. We are warned against taking an oath. But here we see Herod offer up a quick oath, a rash oath. Herod is so captivated by the pleasure of watching his stepdaughter, Salome, dance that he is willing to offer up an almost open-ended wish. Now, some people think that it's because the dance was sensual in nature and Herod was motivated by unbridled lust that he offered up such a rash oath. But the text does not specifically mention that. All we know is that Herod was so well entertained by the display that he was willing to offer up a foolish oath. You ever offered up a foolish oath, a foolish promise, a a quick promise? 
I think it was about 2010, I talked to my wife, Shelly, about making a list, a list of 10 things that I could do for her throughout the year to show her my love for her. Okay? So it's kind of part of my New Year's resolution. So in January, she hands me this list of 10 things. Okay? And I promised her I would get these things done by the end of the year at some point in time. Okay? We're three years out. There are still unfinished things on that list. And I offered it in a moment to my wife where we were in some relational friction. You know what I'm talking about? Those promises we make when we're just a little bit of odds with our spouse. Just to restore the relationship. So have you ever made a foolish promise? One that was not necessarily motivated out of love for another, but served self. What promises have you made to get what you wanted? Those promises in the heat of the moment so that you would continue to be entertained. So that your pleasure would continue. Some of y'all's promises might not be pleasure-oriented. Maybe they're to avoid conflict. What open-ended agreements have you made without counting the cost of what you would have to offer up, give up, so that you could feed your flesh? Verse 8 and 9. Prompted by her mother, she said... Give me the head of John the Baptist here on a platter. And the king was sorry, but because of his oats and his guests, he commanded it to be given. So after being provided this blank check by Herod, Salome runs to her mother, Herodias, to get advice on what she should ask for. And without hesitation, her mom instructs her to ask for her enemy's head on a platter immediately. Let this sink in for a moment. Some estimate this young girl's age to be somewhere between 12 and 14. And her mom instructs her to cash in her blank check for a decapitated head served on a dinner platter. The centerpiece at this girl's table was going to be the head of one of God's prophets, a human head. We tend to read over these passages that we become familiar with. But when you slow down and picture the situation, it is a morbid, horrific, depraved request motivated by a grudge that she had been holding on to because someone wanted her husband to follow God. Someone wanted her husband to obey God. Flip back to the Sermon on the Mount. Verses 38 through 42, Jesus addresses this specific issue of retaliation. Instead of seizing opportunities to harm someone else, his followers are expected to be peacemakers, to go above and beyond what would be expected of them, not to retaliate, but to restrain, give, and sacrifice. Herodias is an example of a person who rejects this teaching. Instead of trusting God, Herodias jumps on the opportunity presented her to exact revenge on the man that had rebuked her relationship with Herod. So congregation, when you are wronged, do you seek revenge? Revenge might not always be as ugly as a beheading, but what about withdrawal from a relationship? What about giving someone the cold shoulder? These passive forms of retaliation are just as 
or more destructive than their active forms. In what ways are you willing to trust Jesus and lay down your rights for another? To give to someone who has taken and to sacrifice for an enemy. Before we move on to our last two verses, I want to address Herod's remorse. Both Matthew and Mark speak of the king's sorrow. And you may be asking the question, does does Herod's sorrow absolve him of the guilt for what was about to happen? The answer is no. 2 Corinthians 7, 9-10, read this. As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief, so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. Whereas a worldly grief only produces death. We know that Herod's sorrow, his grief, was a worldly sorrow because it did not produce repentance. As we read, he was more concerned about saving face than saving life. His fear of man was stronger than his fear of the Lord. We see this back in verse 5 of Matthew and 20 of Mark. It reads, He feared the people, and Herod feared John. Herod had people-pleasing tendencies that interfered with him truly repenting. Brothers and sisters, there is a dramatic difference between being sorry about something and truly repenting. There's a difference between mere confession and full repentance. When you have sinned against someone and you apologize to them, what is your primary goal? Is it just to restore the relationship? To remove the relational friction between you and them? Or are you repenting to God, the Holy One, intending and doing everything in your power to never do it again? Do you confess things to God quickly, but you don't back that up with the efforts it takes for true change? Does your course of action change? Herod felt sorrow, but he still gave the order to murder See us in verse 10. He sent and had John beheaded in the prison, and his head was brought on a platter and given to the girl, and she brought it to her mother. And his disciples came and took the body and buried it, and they went and told Jesus. Finally, our passage today ends with the executioner following through with the order to behead John the Baptist. Our headline today is, The greatest man to ever have lived is dead. Upon hearing about the execution, they retrieved his body and buried it. Flip back one more last time to the Sermon on the Mount, verses 21 through 26. Not only is murder condemned, but anger towards another person. Jesus equates unrighteous anger with murder. And here we see Herodias' anger result in the murder of the man Jesus describes as the greatest man to have ever lived. So what does your anger result in? Does it end with bitterness and resentment? Does it lead to unkind words or actions? Does your anger impact your speech to others or about others behind their back? Are there people you're unwilling to get close to because you are still angry at them? 
Do you give full vent to your anger or do you forgive? Do you pursue reconciliation? As we've seen, John's moral integrity stands in stark contrast to Herodias and Herod's moral corruption. Jesus is uncompromising, whereas Herod's sensual indulgence results in compromise after compromise and eventually the murder, the gruesome murder of John the Baptist. Now, I'd be remiss if I didn't take this opportunity to speak about the life of John the Baptist. To look at the attributes of the man Jesus calls the greatest man to have ever lived. At some level, we all desire to be great, don't we? I took this book off my son's shelf, the Guinness Book of World Records. It contains the accounts of men and women who just want to be great at something. There, there's some crazy things in here. There's, I can relate to this one, the most heads shaved in 24 hours. <laughs> A total of 23,000 heads were shaved in a 24-hour period. We have uh, accounts with the most cockroaches eaten in a one-minute period. 36 cockroaches were consumed by a man, all because he wanted to be great and placed in the Guinness Book of World Records. We might not want to be great like some of these guys want to be great, but there is something inside of us that we want to be great. God has placed that there to be the best at our profession, our craft, our sport. But unfortunately for the men containing this book and men like Muhammad Ali, they are not the greatest. The world defines greatness differently than the Bible does. Listen to how the scriptures define greatness by examining the life of John the Baptist. I'm just going to read these bullet after bullet. The scriptures describe John the Baptist before his birth. It says many will rejoice at his birth and he will be great before the Lord. He will be filled with the Spirit, even from his mother's womb. He will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. He was the forerunner of Christ. He went in the power of Elijah. He turned the hearts of the disobedient to the wisdom of the just. He made ready the hearts and made ready for the Lord a prepared people. At his birth, it was foretold that he would be called the prophet of the Most High. That he would go before the Lord and prepare his ways. And that he would give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins. There isn't much information about his childhood, but what is mentioned is impressive. Luke 1.80 states, He grew up and became strong in spirit. John's character was marked by receptivity to God's word, humility, and boldness. John's public ministry included preparing the way for Jesus, Calling people to repentance. Calling people not only to repent, but to bear fruits in keeping with repentance. He proclaimed a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And he exhorted crowds and preached the good news to them. Wow. This is a man to be imitated. Now John was not perfect. As Larry mentioned a few weeks ago in Matthew 11, he had an apparent moment of doubt about Jesus being the Messiah. But as we have already seen, doubting did not define John's life. Faith defined John's life. And ultimately, he gave his life up for God. 
That is why Jesus called him the greatest man to have ever lived. Our passage today begs the question, whom does your life most resemble, Herod or John? Because when you boil things down, there's really only two types of people in this world. Unbelievers and believers. Those who choose not to follow Christ and those who follow Him. Those represented as Herod are unbelievers. And those represented by John this morning are believers. Herod was even interested in the things of God. Mark's account says that when he heard John, he was greatly perplexed and he heard him gladly. He listened gladly to John, God's prophet, but his vices prevented him from obedience to God. Herod liked his sin more. He valued sensual indulgence more than he treasured God. Being interested in the things of God is not the same things as following God. John, on the other hand, was devoted to God. He lived for God's purposes and eventually gave his life up for God. He was great in God's eyes. Even though John the Baptist in the scriptures today is killed, he is the hero. He is the one to imitate. And even though Herod lived, he is the villain. He is the one to be pitied. So, Are you the type of person who is interested in God? Interested in hearing the things of God? Or is God your life? Have you recognized your great need for God, accepted His free gift of salvation, and now live your life devoted to Him? Or do you live your life your way for your own enjoyment and your own pleasure? The only hope any of us have is God Himself. John accepted this. Herod did not. What about you? Let's pray.